And I'm Carrie. And we are Paranormal Chicks. Episode 108. Why am I still so like, oh my God, when we say like episode 100 something? I know. It's because it's crazy that we've stuck with it this long. And just hit the two year anniversary. Mm hmm. And I hope we have like a 10 year anniversary. Oh God, Carrie just like shit her pants, y'all. I just looked at Donna like, I gotta be with you that long. That motherfucker been playing Candy Crush for fucking 10 years. (laughs) Literally at least eight. Oh, my God. (laughs) Holy shit. It's all fun and games until you realize how long you've been playing something. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, they know what's up because they gave you unlimited lives. For a whole week, y'all. I know a couple of y'all tagged me on Facebook about this, and I'm like, (laughs) y'all, I already know. I already texted on Tiffany, and I said, I will see you next week. Mm Mm-hmm. Sleeping, Candy Crush, and sex. All S's, that's what Carrie wants. Oh, and snacks. Candy Crush is not oh. S's. <laughs> I was thinking sugar. <laughs> I was thinking sugar. <laughs> I mean, you're not wrong. Well, something else that Carrie's been doing up for a long time, having a birthday, and she had one this weekend. Sure did. Turn the big three, five. Is that a thing? I don't know, but I do know it makes me tick another box. Even those boxes. I need someone to tick my box. That's what I need. I got that covered. Always got to rub it in my face. (laughs) I mean, I need someone to rub it in my face, too. (laughs) I'm taking anything here. (laughs) Quarantine when you're single sucks. Sucks. Also, I learned that the only difference is that we're not going out to eat. Like, literally the only change is that we're not going to eat somewhere. Yeah. I'm like, well, I had one hobby. (laughs) 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 Like, damn. But before we get off of birthdays, I found an email. Okay. And it is from across the pond. My favorite. Came a little wet. <laughs> That's so stupid. That's what pond. you're wishing when, you, when somebody would tick your box. It's more than a little, but okay. <laughs> All right. This is what it said. Just wanted to say hi from Doncaster in England. Hope I said that right. Because, you know, sometimes it's like. Doncaster. Exactly. Well, thanks for still my thing. But okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're 35 now. You know everything. <laughs> she ticks another box, y'all. <laughs> Motherfucker. I'm a whole set of numbers above you now. <laughs> <laughs> well, can't do that math, so you are. <laughs> All right, back to this email. She writes, my daughter Sophie introduced me to your podcast months ago. We listened together on our way home when I pick her up at school, and now we listen in the kitchen while cooking because school's canceled for now. We're big fans, and I love your Southern accents, and you're so funny. Here's the whole thing. I mean, I'm like, thank you for thinking we're funny and loving our accents, but here's the reason why I'm reading this. Sophie shares her birthday with the lovely Carrie. Oh, hey, Sophie. Sophie will be 15 this year, and we can't celebrate anywhere as we can't leave the house due to the coronavirus lockdown, and I bet it's the same for you guys. I would be forever grateful if you manage to do a shout out and wish her happy birthday when you do a podcast around the 11th of April. So, as usual, we're a little late. Daylight and a dollar short is a story of my life. Definitely. 
But we hope you had a blast with your mama cooking up a storm. Hopefully you had a great birthday cake. I mean, that makes a birthday. Look, all I need for my birthday is a Dairy Queen ice cream cake. Unlimited lines from Candy Crush. Oh, God. Look, I would be set up. I hope you had an amazing birthday just like I did. Me too, Sophie. And thank you so much, Vicky, for writing in. Sophie, you have the coolest fucking mom ever. And thank you for introducing your mom, Sophie. Right. And having the balls to introduce your mom to us and to be like, (laughs) Mom, I listen to this. Don't think I'm crazy. Yeah. (laughs) And the first thing is like, carbs and cocks, carbs and cocks. Yeah. Mom, I don't say any of this stuff. And, you know, we had one of our quote unquote youths right in this last Sinister Sightings, too. So, representing the youngins. I mean, I mean, I just want to tell my nephews, see, I told you I'm cool. Right? Oh, and we have some new cool cats and kittens to introduce. (laughs) (laughs) Aside from it being Tiger King, it still reminds me of that part of Greece when they're like, Uh put your mittens and your kittens and away we go. Yeah. Thank you so much, Glenn W. from California. Justine P. from Texas. Emma R. from Workington, England. Amanda M. from Virginia. Nana K. from Denmark. And Mike P. from Illinois. Well, why did you have everyone across the pond? Because that's my thing. (laughs) (laughs) If you want bonus content, all of that good stuff, go on over to patreon.com forward slash the APC podcast. One more thing. We know that everybody's looking for shit to do because we're all shelter in place, quarantined, social distancing, all the all the rage these days. Uh-huh. And so people are looking for podcasts. They're like, what can I listen to? So we want them to listen to us. Please. So how can you help? Well, obviously. Word of mouth. Like Sophie did. Telling her mom, tell mm-hmm. all the people, make them listen, hold them down, time. No, don't do that. But the other way you could Damn, do it. Dennis Rader came out in her. <laughs> they don't know who that is? Tell them. We do an episode on him, BTK. By the way, it's BTK. That's the episode. The other way, though, is reviews. I feel like we hadn't said that in a while, but reviewing us on iTunes helps is to be more visible, all the things. So if you could, please head on over, click whatever stars you feel are appropriate, write a little blurb, and hit submit. Yes, please, y'all, because, I mean, we just are trying to do our part during the whole pandemic, you know? Mm-hmm. Everyone needs an extra large pizza in their life, so why not have two? You're not wrong. <laughs> all right. Well, with these scary times that we're living in, and we're all hoping for a cure for COVID-19, all of that, Something like healing waters or mystical healing powers sounds alluring. And depending on how far at the end of your rope you are, they can seem like the only answer. Well, in the late 19th century, thousands of tourists flocked to the city of Eureka Springs, Arkansas, to more than 60 springs that supplied healing water. And there were actual claims and testimonials for this healing power of the springs. And it all started really in 1854 when Alva Jackson, who was a doctor, him and his son were hunting and something happened to his son's eye. 
And he actually used the water to like flush out his eye and some other stuff. And it healed his son's eye. So he's like, hmm, all right. Well, so then he started to use the water in his daily medical practice. Well, as usual, when you got something going good, something bad happens. And well, the Civil War broke out. So his practice was suspended. However, he did treat soldiers from both sides. So he was kept pretty busy. And of course, he used some of this magical water. And around this time, he invited a judge by the name of L.B. Saunders to come and get some relief for his leg sore. That sounds like such a Southern judge name that you would find in, like, <laughs> Backwoods, Alabama. Yeah. Doesn't he, it? It does. It sounds like the night that the lights went out in Georgia. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, two months later, he was healed and was a firm believer. So he started telling everyone he knew about this magical elixir. And soon, by the summer of 1879, the settlement where the judge and the doctor were was named Eureka Springs. So now the settlement was a town. And not just a town, but a destination. After the war, people were looking for cures, healing, anything like that. And we know that people cling to any glimmer of hope when they're vulnerable. And we also know that certain people will see these vulnerable people and take advantage. Mm -hmm. And one of these people is Powell Clayton, who was the governor of Arkansas from 1868 to 1870. And he formed what's known as ESIC, which is Eureka Springs Improvement Company. And so he knew with all of these people visiting that he can make money, which it isn't like he's preying upon them in a malicious way. It's just that he knew that people who are broken are always going to look to be fixed. Mm-hmm. And of course, if, hey, if we have over 60 springs that can heal this, it can heal that, it can do this, whatever, hmm, come one, come all and stay at this new hotel. So he gathered some investors, such as the Frisco Railroad, and they developed plans for a hotel and spa. It would be known as the Crescent Hotel and Spa, and it would be the most luxurious resort in the country. And don't forget, it would be overlooking the magical healing waters of Eureka Springs. I want to go. Right? Well, just wait. <laughs> Okay, maybe not, but I want to go to a spa. I'm, I mean, I'm game. I'm still game for it. The Crescent Hotel took two years and around $294,000 to build. And that was back in the late 1800s. If my math is correct, which okay. it isn't. Okay. But that's like right at $5.9 million. Holy shit. Yeah. Well, it opened May 20th, 1886 and was creme de la creme. The who's who of America wanted to be there, needed to be there, and it was everything that the ESIC thought it would be, until it wasn't. Oh, shit. In the early 1900s, the healing waters lost their appeal. They didn't really seem to be capable of curing anything, and slowly but surely, people stopped coming. The hotel was then changed to a women's college from 1908 to 1924, 
and then sat abandoned for six years and then reopened as a junior college from 1930 to 1934 and then again was abandoned. And then in 1937, Norman Baker bought the property and he was set on opening a cancer hospital and a health resort there. He had a miracle cure. Uh oh. Mm-hmm. Sound familiar? He said that patients would not be subjected to painful tests or surgery, but that they would walk away from the resort cancer-free. Fuck people like this. Right. And I know y'all are listening and rolling your eyes because we all know this is too good to be true, but there were people who were at the end of their rope and this glimmer of hope was all that they had to hold on to. Well, and it still happens now. Oh, for sure. I mean, it still happens on the daily when people send money into those, like, not telethons, but the people Uh do the, like, healing stuff on TV and all of that. And, well, (laughs) surprise, surprise, no one was cured from staying at Baker's Resort. He was just a con artist who scammed vulnerable people out of their money and sometimes the last little bit of the time that they had left. See, that right there to me is worse than taking somebody's all of somebody's money. I mean, mm-hmm. that's terrible too because I mean, yeah. That's like one of my biggest fears. That's why I don't like I don't know. I just don't when if it sounds too good to be true it's because it is. Mm-hmm. But to take the time that they have left with their family like fuck you. Mm-hmm. He had no medical training and had actually been convicted in Iowa in 1936. For practicing medicine without a license. Surprise, surprise. Let me just say this too. How bad does it have to fucking be that you got in trouble for that in 1936? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean. Mm-hmm. Well, he was finally arrested in 1939 after being investigated by the FBI for mail fraud because he had made around $500,000 a year by selling his miracle elixirs through the mail. And that was just while he was in Eureka Springs. $500,000. Oh, just wait. After they arrested him for that, they continued to investigate. And they found that he had defrauded cancer patients out of $4 million collectively. Wow. Mm -hmm. Worse than anything, though, is that even though no one died directly from taking his cure... His patients more than likely died sooner than they should have because they didn't have proper care and treatment. And people did die while at the resort because, I mean, they had cancer. Yeah. And it's just like, my God, like I said, the last days, the last months, whatever of their lives, he took from them. And I will say, on February 5th, 2019... They were working to extend a parking pad, and they had, like, their gardener, like, doop, 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 out off the dirt, and had some, like, bottles that came up, and she was like, these look medicinal. Everyone knows the history of the resort, so she was like, "Mm, all right, talk to the manager, all the things, and so they called the Arkansas Archaeological Survey team over at the university, and they discovered a secret bottle grave of more than 500 bottles that belonged to Norman Baker. 
And the bottles contained several of his quote unquote curing potions and some fleshy medical specimens that he extracted from his patients. And also some of his promotional movies, some like business cards, all of that. And so some of them are on display back at the hotel at where he had the morgue. I want to know, did they test the elixir and what actually is it? Mm, I don't know. Damn, I wish you would have known that. I, I should look. But I just had to say that because like, ugh, could you imagine? Like, oh, that's so creepy to like, okay, just digging away and holy shit. I mean, hearing about it, I'm like, ew. But in real life, I'd be like, let me see. Uh-huh. I mean, that medical museum the uh, Muter Museum in Philadelphia that's, like, the medical – one of the best museums I've ever been to. Like, I love that shit. Yeah. So, again, but, like, hearing, like, ooh, it's, like, all these oh, – again, I'm, like, ew. But in real life, I'd be, like, can you pass that around for the class to see? Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. Well, and also, it was, like, kind of, like, yeah, this did happen, you know, mm-hmm. because – because stuff turns into folklore. Yeah, and, You know what I mean? So it's like, no, he did literally cut shit from, like, a tumor or whatever. And he wasn't a doctor. Like, he did not know what he was doing. That takes some fucking balls. <laughs> like, how narcissistic of an asshole do you have to be to be like, yeah, I could probably cut that out. <laughs> you know who? Fucking Dr. Death. Yes. Well, at least he had some training. I mean, like, he, I mean, he was going in blind, but he wasn't, like, going in blind. You know what I mean? Yeah. He at least went to fucking medical school. Yeah. Okay. So, moving on from the sad shit. The building was abandoned for about six more years. And then in 1946, there was a group of four Chicago businessmen who bought it and wanted to restore it to its original beauty. Everything was good. Everything was going great until a fire broke out in 1967 and destroyed the fourth floor of the South Wing Mm. and, like, completely wrecked it. It was then abandoned again and passed through different hands until 1997, and that's when Marty and Elise Roenick bought it, and they began to restore it back to all of its historic charm and glamour, which they did do, and it is a nice hotel and spa to this day, and it's considered to be one of the most visited hotels in the South. Damn. But. I was going to say. Some guests seem to have never checked out and still walk the halls and property. And Marty and Elise had heard that the hotel was haunted when they purchased it. So they had hired two mediums to do a reading of the hotel. And both found that the hotel indicated that it could be a portal to the other side. And that portal is supposedly located on top of what used to be the morgue of the hospital that Norman Baker had. The apparition who is spotted the most is not a hotel guest, though. It is that of a red-haired Irishman who was a stonemason, and his name is Michael. Allegedly, Michael was one of the original masons who worked on the building in 1885. Unfortunately, while he was working on the roof, he lost his balance and fell 
to the second floor area and was killed. Oh, poor Michael. And the story goes that he had a weakness for the ladies. Oh, and Michael. saw a beautiful lady walking, lost his footing, and well, yeah. And I feel like if Carrie was going to have an accident, it would be because a cute guy's walking by. Or, <laughs> or it's a guy and she'd be like, I think I know him. Because that's basically her on Facebook. People you may know, that girl will be like, oh, let me click. Yeah, I do know him. Like, who actually <laughs> clicks those people? <laughs> Carrie. <laughs> Fucking Carrie. I don't ever add them. I just look. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. She'll be like, do you remember a blah, blah, blah. I'm like, God, who? where'd you? People you may know. I'm like. <laughs> Literally had that conversation today. Yes. Well, the area that Michael fell to his death, it now houses room 218 of the hotel and is said to be the most haunted guest room. He is pretty playful and he, you know, still loves the ladies, but he loves to play tricks with the lights, the doors, and the television, but he could be heard pounding on the walls. Other people have seen hands coming out of the bathroom mirror and they've heard what sounds like a man who is falling into the ceiling, like crying, mm. but like a whale, not like, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Another time that Michael has been suspected of, you know, playing a joke, one of the guests was shaken during the night. And then when they woke up, they went, like, screaming from the room because they saw blood splattered all over its walls. Okay, look, Michael, I was down with you until you fucked with somebody's sleep. <laughs> Don't fuck with my sleep, Michael. Don't fuck with my sleep. Unless you're pounded. I was going to say, I mean, what if he wants to pound you while you're asleep? You don't want to be woke up with that? I mean, that's the best way to be woken up. Okay. So it's like a asterisk? Yes. Of course there's a caveat to it. There's some other ghosts that have been sighted in room 202 and 424. And then also a waiter carrying a tray of butter in the hallways. That's very specific. Very specific. And how rude of you, because what if I just needed some butter and been like, oh, fuck, yes. Wait. I can't believe it's not butter. <laughs> oh, fuck, yes. That's great. <laughs> oh, my God. That's hilarious. <laughs> Another apparition on the second floor is in room 212, and it is of Dr. John Fremont Ellis who was the hotel's in-house doctor around the late 19th century. And he was known for being a very heavy pipe smoker of cherry tobacco. You can really smell that tobacco at different times. Yeah. But remember what Creep Mom had said that when, like, the wood will expand during heat time, like, when it's heated. And so then any smells that are captured during that would release. So it's not really ghostly. It's, like, environmental. But would it still be there after a, over 100 years? Really, almost 150 years. I mean, years. tobacco sticks with you. It does. But that's a long fucking time. I don't know. Creep Mom? Creep Mom. Let us know. She's shaking her head or something right now. One time, Steve Garrison, who is the cook at the hotel, said that he was slicing and dicing vegetables. 
he looked up and he saw a boy that was dressed in period clothing and had pop bottle glasses. And he was just like skipping around the kitchen. And then another time he flipped on the lights because he was, you know, getting ready to work. And he said about that time when he flipped on the lights, all of the pots and pans came flying off of their hooks. Oh, shit. Yeah. And that little boy that he saw skipping around the kitchen is thought to be Brecky, who was a four-year-old boy who died at the hotel back in its, you know, heyday. And it was thought to be maybe by appendicitis is how he died. So it was like 100 years ago is when this kid died. But he has been seen playing in the kitchen, in the hall, and has photobombed tourists at some t- you know, at certain times. Some other ghosts are associated with the whole Norman Baker Cancer Hospital and Resort. And one is a nurse. She's dressed in all white and is seen pushing a gurney on the third floor. And what's important to note is that she's only spotted after 11 p.m. Because that's the time that they would move the deceased out of the cancer hospital. Oh, my God. And she disappears when she reaches the end of the hallway. And then if people haven't seen her, they do hear, like, sounds of the squeaks and the wheels and all of that. Like, a gurney is being rolled down the hallway. Like, again, around that time at 11 p.m. And so on the third floor, that is where the morgue was. And even today, it still houses his old autopsy table and the walk-in freezer. Also located on the third floor is the laundry area. And that's where a maintenance guy who works there, he witnessed all of the washer and dryers turning on and off by themselves, like, during the middle of the night. And it wasn't just like, oh, one, or, like, even in, like, together, It was just, like, randomly happening. And speaking of Dr. Fuckwad, there is an apparition that has been seen in the old rec room, in the basement, and at the foot of the first floor stairway. And it's dressed in a purple shirt and a white, like, linen suit. Usually looking somewhat confused, which cracks me up because he was probably like, is this a tumor? But that apparition looks identical to the photographs of Dr. Baker, quote unquote, Dr. Baker. Another ghostly figure that is linked to the whole cancer hospital is Theodora. And she is most often seen by housekeepers in room 419. And she's usually seen like kind of struggling with her key Or anything like that. But then she quickly vanishes. Sometimes she will introduce herself as Theodora. And she'll say that she's like here for treatment. And then she vanishes. Oh my god. Like she talks to him? Mm Mm-hmm. Holy shit. Yeah. One time a tour guide had one woman say that she had clearly saw a man with a buzz cut hairstyle ask, What about my treatment? And then, like, some other people said that they saw, like, a blurred figure, but they didn't, you know, they're like, "Mm, it was out of my peripheral vision, so I didn't think anything of it. But now that you say that you heard that, like, it makes sense because it was, like, at the same moment. 
So that kind of like another cancer patient there. Another thing, there was this antique switchboard and they used it in the hotel for a long time. Again, trying to keep that charm and everything, but it kept receiving phone calls that would come from the basement and it would be completely empty. And so they were like, "Mm, (laughs) bye-bye. So they discontinued using that switchboard. In the lobby, there is a gentleman who's dressed in like Victorian clothing, like top hat. Every time I say that kind of shit, I think of Titanic. Every time. Me too. Me too. (laughs) He's also seen like sitting at the bar and just like very distinguished looking and everything. And people have like, again, because he looks like. You know, like, are you playing a character out mm-hmm. off of Titanic? Like, yeah. Who you is, dude? So people, like, try to strike up a conversation, but he just sits there quietly, never responds, and then he disappears. I wonder why all ghosts are always from the 1800s. Like, they're always in those, like, period quotes. Like, where's a good ghost from the 1970s? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I'll find you one, Carrie. Like, at this point, it's been long enough. I will find you one. They should have gotten their energy, become more mature. (laughs) I mean, it's been 50 years. Well, another place a lot of the Victorian dressed ghosts appear is the Crystal Dining Room. And they've seen groups of dancers and they like dancing around. And that. Seems beautiful to me. Mm-hmm. But hauntingly beautiful. Yes, exactly. Then there's also been a man who would be sitting at a table near the windows. And when he's approached, he says, and again, I'm fucking romantic. The quarantine's got my romantic side coming out, okay? But he says, I saw the most beautiful woman here last night and I'm waiting for her to return. Oh, Like that just breaks my heart. Unrequited love. She ain't coming back. Spoiler alert. She catfished you, dude. She She, probably married. She did. (laughs) So is you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so much for that sweet moment. (laughs) Carrie's in a relationship. Still hates love. (laughs) (laughs) The spirits in the dining room, those Victorian dress spirits... They are said to be very playful, and one Christmas, there was a Christmas tree and, like, you know, packages underneath it and everything, and it was found the next day, moved to the other side of the room. The whole tree? Yeah, the whole tree, all the presents, all the things. And then all of the chairs had been moved to circle and face the tree in the new location. And so it's like, uh, what the what? And then another time, like, things will look, you know, perfect, but then they, like, look closer and all the menus are, like, scattered and, you know, just weird stuff like that. Another ghost is a spirit of a young woman who attended the Crescent College and Conservatory for Young Women, which is the first college that it was turned into after it was the original hotel. According to the story... She either jumped or was pushed from the balcony, and she died. And so what guests hear are her screams as she falls. Oh, God. 
I know. And I do want to say, like, this has been on so many ghost shows. Like, Ghost Adventures did, like, a whole special here. Like, I think it was one of their finales. Ghost Hunters. Like, I can't even think of all of them. I mean, like, a shit ton. Paranormal Witness has been here. Because it is known as, like, one of the most haunted hotels in the U.S. But I remember the episode of Ghost Hunters It's On. And Grant and Jason get an image on the thermal cam. And I remember watching it and getting chills when I saw the figure. And I believe Tiffany was watching it with me. Or I showed her after. Because it was like, dude, you don't believe this? Watch this. Because, you know, thermal imaging, it's like, okay, but no, 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 no. Like, it was a fucking figure and it wasn't there. So if you get a chance, like, it's a minute long Go on YouTube, whatever, and search for Crescent Hotel, and it's literally a minute, and you'll see it. Of course, I had to go to Reddit, and I had to find one thing. I had to. I haven't been on Reddit in forever, it feels like. Two episodes ago. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, literally, last episode, I did get some stuff from Reddit, so there's that. Like, I got the idea, because it was like, Disney, creepy shows or something, I was like, well, creepy shit, you know? And so, but you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. But this was posted a year ago and it was posted by RRRKUH. But she said, basically her mom had to go to Crescent Hotel for work. And so she lives like an hour away. And so she was joking that her mom was going to get haunted because everyone else is going there to like do the ghost tours and stuff. And her mom's like going there just for business Well, her mom had met some people and they had told her about this like ghost app that you can get on your phone. Like you don't have to do the ghost tours. Like here's this app you can get on your phone. And so she did it. And then like the meter went red and like went crazy. And so the girls like snapped some pictures and there were like three sets of eyes around her. And so she was like, okay, mom, like, okay, do I need to go there and, like, help you? And she was like, yes, I'm scared shitless. Like, come help me. So she gets there and she, like, and her mom turns on the app. And so the daughter is like, well, she again thinks it's BS. So she's like, okay, well, the first thing that the app says is smell. And she's like, okay. But her mom's like, "Uh, you just made tea. And so she's like, that's a stretch, you know? Well, then the next word is doctor. And so the daughter's like, well, that's not a stretch because, again, everyone knows the history. And so now she's like, okay, all right. And then she's like, it's trying to scare us. Like, all right. So she stood up and she was like, you're a coward. And the next thing it said was clown. And I mean... A lot of people are scared of clowns, Mm -hmm. a.k.a. Tiffany. You're scared of Heine. Why you had to bring him up? I'm just saying. Look, he is a special kind of clown that is too scary. Like, he is a demonic clown. I'm just saying. Don't be calling Tiffany out when you are, too. It's one thing, and it's your laugh that you did on him. I mean, I don't like clowns, either. But it's... Heine is... Don't say his name. Here's the thing. I don't like... Like, it isn't scary to me. I like it's like someone dressed up as a clown. I don't like mascots. I don't like mm-hmm. people with. If I can't tell who you are and you're in front of me, I don't like it. Yeah, 
Because we don't trust anyone. Exactly. She was like, shut it off. Like, let's not do it anymore. Yeah. Because it's now taunting. Like, it was, it wasn't just, like, saying randomness. Yeah. They were, you know, trying to stay up a little bit, had the lights on, trying to calm down. And they said that they just had a heaviness all around them. But at one point, her mom fell asleep. And then she fell asleep. And then she heard the telephone ring. Well, so immediately she got up, but it felt like she was hit with a ton of bricks. Her mom was still passed the fuck out. And so she's like, holy shit, like, that really wasn't the phone, you know. And her mom's asleep, like, I am all alone with the spirit. And she's like, I called the spirit a coward. Don't be taunting fucking spirits and be mad when they fire back. Right. Well, she started to pray immediately. And then she felt a tug at the side of her bed near her feet, like someone was tugging on the blanket. And then again at the other side. Mm -mm. And then like prancing across the bed towards her feet. Nope. No. What the fuck? Then she felt something grab around her ankle. Nope. Mm Mm-hmm. And then she felt like the presence was like all over her, right above her, looking at her and she's like I just closed my eyes so she didn't even know if it was a spirit right there but she just felt it looking at her and so over and over she just said God help me God help me God help me and within a minute whatever it was was pulled off of her and she you know like was relieved she thanked God said mom to which she woke up quickly because you know Mm -hmm. Anytime a mom hears mom, Uh unless they're watching their shows or drinking their coffee, they respond. Mm -hmm. She was like, we need to go. And it was already like 440-ish. So it wasn't like midnight. Yeah. But so she was like, okay. Well, so they got all the way down to the ballroom for breakfast. And so she started to finally tell her like what it was because she wasn't about to speak about it in the room. Yeah. Well, she tells her mom... Like, this strange telephone ring woke me up, didn't wake you up, and then all of this stuff happened. Well, she said that the ring was what she chose for when she gets an email on her phone, and she got an email at four. Oh. But, so, that woke her up, so it wasn't, like, a ghostly ring, but that's what woke the daughter up, but made her vulnerable. To all the other. Yeah. But that's why the mom didn't wake up, because... It's like she knew what the sound was. Right. So that was her experience. But she was like, it's haunted. Like, don't, like you said, don't mess with the spirits. All right. I'm going to speak about one more spirit. And this is going to be Carrie's least favorite. But there's a ghost cat. And his name is Morris. And even more that Carrie's going to hate it. It's an orange tabby. Just like my old beloved cat, Ambrosius, that Carrie hated because he would steal her covers. That's why I hated him. It wasn't because he was an orange tabby. (laughs) I know. Is this cat a cover hog? I'm sure he was. Well, then I don't like this one either. (laughs) But everyone loved him. So he was the hotel's mascot and resident greeter from 1973 to 1994. What? Yeah. That cat was old. Mm -hmm. Nine lives, girl. Well, he was named after the tabby who starred in the Nine Lives cat commercials. 
He had a door that let him in and out of the hotel whenever he wanted. He had his own quote-unquote cat flat and was basically the feline general manager. When Morris passed away, the hotel had a little service for him. It was very well attended. Like, everyone in Eureka Springs, like, knew about him. Even if, you know, they didn't do a lot in the hotel and stuff, it's like, no, everyone knew Morris. He was so beloved that a portrait of him still hangs in the hotel, and they have, like, a little memorial plaque with a poem about him under it. And he is buried at the back of the hotel in a flower bed, just outside of the veranda. Well, one time there was a local artist named Rebecca Becker, and she was at the hotel and she was sketching when she felt a cat jump in her lap. And when she looked down, nothing was there. And then on several occasions, when the ghost tours end at the morgue, there's been several people who have felt something like brushing up on their legs and stuff. And it's just Morris being Morris. But I want to end with part of his poem, because I thought it was just too cute. He filled his position exceedingly well. The general manager title he wore was printed right there on his office door. He acted as greeter and sometimes as guide. Whatever his duties, he did them with pride. He chose his own hours and set his own pace. The guests were impressed with his manners and grace. Upstairs and down, he kept everything nice. They might have had ghosts, but they never had mice. (laughs) I thought that was so cute. No, you hate it because it's cats. (sighs) Yes. (laughs) I just thought it was cute. Like, they might have had ghosts, but they never had mice. Yeah, that's cute. Well, let's fucking go. I want a spa and a ghost tour. Same. But would you really want to do the ghost tour? Yeah, why not? Okay. Because they're going to fuck with your sleep. Well, but if you know that going into it, I can be prepared and take a Benadryl. (laughs) (laughs) Great. So then I'll be alone. (laughs) No, but that's like part of it, though. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I mean, mostly I want the spa. (laughs) Same. And I mean, I'm not going to lie. I'll try the healing waters. Uh, Duh. (laughs) I mean, I ain't going to (laughs) lie. So post-coronavirus road trip, we need to. All righty. Let's do it. Okay. On to my story. Alrighty. My story has a bit of a, like, historical impact. Okay. But not in the serial killer way. Okay. An assassination of a president? No. Okay, I got nothing. <laughs> okay. So, have you ever heard of Catherine Genovese? No. Okay. So, she went by Kitty. And I've heard her name pronounced a few different ways, but... but Seems to be the consensus is Genovese, but we're going to call her Kitty because that was what she went by. Kitty was born July 7th in 1935. She was born and raised in Brooklyn. Her dad worked for this coat and apron supply company, which I thought was very 1930s. She was the oldest of five kids, and she grew up in a very like Italian-American family. The neighborhood that she grew up in in Brooklyn, it was like a working-class neighborhood of Italian and Irish immigrants. And Kitty was just this energetic, just pure soul that everybody loved. Growing up, she was voted, like, class cut up. This was in 1953 with, like, 712 people. She was voted this. You know, so she just, she left her mark. Like, people remembered her, and she was just so charming and beautiful and 
all the things that everybody always tells 48 hours about people that you know. Yeah. Yeah. But for her, it was true. After high school, her family moved to Connecticut, but she decided to stay back in New York because she was young. She wanted to keep up her New York lifestyle. You know, not Connecticut, New York. She's young. So Kitty's on her own now, living her best life. She has a few different jobs, you know, secretary, waitress, bartender, you know, that kind of thing. She finally found her niche, though, at this bar called Ev's 11th Hour, and this is in Queens, and she became the manager of the bar. Just like in high school, working at this bar, everybody fucking loved her. She made a shit ton of money. Homegirl made $700 a month, which biography.com, that's where I got a, like a lot of this information. They said that, of course, this article is from 2014. So at that point, that was like $5,000 a month. Shit. That, that girl makes like 80 grand a year then. Dang. In today's money, Avi. But she was busting her ass, working double shifts all the time because she was saving up to open an Italian restaurant. Of course, her dad was always on her ass about getting married because we're in the late 1950s, early 1960s. So it's like, okay, she needs to get married now, you know. And she always told her dad that no man could, like, quote, no man could support me because I make more than a man. Damn, get like, it, girl. Right, Kitty? Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, what her parents and, well, her family didn't know was also the reason Kitty wasn't getting married is because she was actually a lesbian. On March 13th of 1963, Kitty met Marianne Zelanko, and they met at this place called Swing Rendezvous. This was a lesbian bar in Greenwich Village that was, you know, under the radar, not really, because again, it's 1963. Yeah. So while they're in New York, so obviously it's a little more progressive than other places, it's still 1963. Hell, we're still two decades before the AIDS epidemic. And, yeah. you know. Side note, I love the word rendezvous. Mm-hmm. Marianne and Kitty fell in love fast, and decided that they wanted to move in together. Also, every time you say that, all I think about is Marianne and Wanda. Every time. From Goodbye Earl. Oh, Marianne and Wanda were the best of friends, yeah. Mm-hmm. All through their high school days. Mm-hmm. Marianne and Kitty get an apartment in Queens in this neighborhood called Kew Gardens. They get a little apartment in this two-story walk-up on the second floor. It's got... You know, a storefront, just all the things. It, I mean, live in what you picture when you picture New York to me. Yeah. On March 13th of 1964, it's Kitty and Marianne's one-year anniversary. And she finally leaves the bar around 3 in the morning, heading home. Of course, you know, it, it's like, it's their anniversary. She's excited to get home, blah, blah, blah. So their apartment is by this rail station. And that's where Kitty parked her car when she got home that night. Not too terribly far from the apartment, but she's walking in and she hears footsteps behind her. And so she starts running because she's like, okay, this is not right. Yeah, it's three in the morning. Nothing good can be behind me. Absolutely. No one should be following anybody, especially that time of night. So Kitty's running. She's almost to her apartment when... The guy following her catches up to her. Ugh. He immediately stabs her. And she yells out, oh, God, I've been stabbed. 
and they ensue in this tussle. So they're rolling around and fighting when a neighbor like opens the window and sees what's going on and yells out, leave that girl alone. Some stuff says that the neighbor says what's going on down there, but the, most of the things say he says, leave that girl alone. Once the neighbor yells down, the attacker gets up and runs away. One of the articles I found said that when the attacker runs away, that Kitty starts crawling towards her apartment. A documentary I watched on YouTube and a couple of the other articles talked about how she got up and walked, but was almost like zombie-like. Yeah. Walk into her, towards her apartment because she knows Marianne is in the apartment. She's just trying to get home and get to where she's safe. So she gets all the way to the apartment building and into the little vestibule and she collapses. While she's trying to make her getaway, the attacker runs to his car, which is only like 100 yards away at this point. So he's sitting there, kind of calms himself because he's like, okay, I don't hear any sirens. The police are not coming. So he changes and puts on like a different hat that kind of shields himself, like shields his face and stuff, and gets back out of the car and starts walking around looking for Kitty. Like a fucking shyster. So he's walking around, looking around all these corners, trying to find Kitty when he finally finds her. And she's bleeding, absolutely petrified. And he attacks her again. He ends up stabbing her over and over again and actually rapes her too in this open area, in this vestibule of this apartment complex. And when he was done, he stood up, adjusted his clothes, took $49 out of her wallet, and left. Vanished like a fart in the wind. So at this point, Kitty has been stabbed 13 or 14 times. She's still alive, but barely. So finally... Sophie Farrar is a neighbor and she comes out because she hears it all and she is Kitty's friend and she is just holding her in her arms, just trying to comfort her, trying to keep her alive. When another one of the neighbors, Carl Ross, calls the police, the police get there within two minutes and when Kitty was on her way to the hospital, she dies from her wounds. Mm. That's so sad that it was on their one-year anniversary and, like, gosh. And Marianne slept upstairs knowing knowing. nothing. Yeah. Ugh. So, the attack lasted 30 minutes. 30 minutes. Ugh. And this is 30 minutes of all of these neighbors being able to hear and see what's going on. And so the police are starting to do their canvas and, you know, see what's going on. Kitty's body is taken to the morgue and Marianne is asked to go identify her. Like I said, she has at least 13 stab wounds, so many defensive wounds. Kitty put up a fight. I want to say, too, that just kind of a sign of the times Her uncle also came to identify her. And so it's just interesting that Marianne's identification 
like, wasn't enough. Yeah. Well, Marianne was one of the first suspects because, again, you always look in their insular group and then work your way out. Because I I couldn't rattle off a fake percentage, but majority of people know their attacker. You know, random stranger-on-stranger attacks are, are way more rare. So detectives are interviewing Marianne, and they are not taking it easy on her. They are using all the inappropriate 1964 tactics on her. And even during the interrogation, very inappropriately focused on their sexual relationship. Not mm-hmm. not uh-huh. just their sexuality, but like their actual sexual relationship. Wow. Which is highly inappropriate. I mean, obviously. Yeah. Uncalled for. Because, I mean, would they have done that if it was a man that had been attacked and it was his wife in the interrogation or... Vice versa. No, absolutely not. It's also said that Kitty's family didn't know she was a lesbian and that, you know, they had to process that information along with the fact that, uh, hello, she's murdered. So I'm sure that was part of the uncle go having to go identify the body too. And they're like, well, who is this girl? This is just her roommate kind of thing. Mm-hmm. When really it was potentially the love of her life. Well, one of the next things the police do is they go to the bar just to interview her coworkers, get a timeline, like, did she have enemies? You know, the mm-hmm. normal the normal shebang. Well, they find out that Kitty actually had a date with a man that afternoon or that night. And so they interview him and they're like, you know, tell us all about it. And they're like, okay. You know, he's like, we went drinking, hung out, you know, no big deal. We came back to the bar about two she said she was going to stay around the bar that night like to sleep but decided to go home instead and he said that he left and went on another date at like 3 a.m so the police were like oh, okay hold hold up rico suave right who the fuck you are you uh-huh. know? okay so he was like i don't think y'all understand kitty doesn't like men She's gay. Yeah. So I feel like that kind of gave more credence, if that's the right word, to Marianne's story, too, that helped them rule her out. Well, at this point is when it kind of starts blowing up that there were 37 to 38, depending on which article you read, people in that vicinity that heard and or saw what happened to Kitty and did nothing. An editor for the New York Times was actually with the police commissioner at the time, who was Michael Murphy, and they were like having breakfast or something. And he says, here's just some shit for a fucking article. There were 37 people out there that are, you know, that saw that were in those surrounding areas opening and then closing their blinds when they saw what was going on. And did nothing. And here's the kicker. He says, one of them said, I just didn't want to get involved. Yeah. So it's it started this whole media coverage of what's the psychological reasoning behind that. And it kind of helped develop what we know of as like the bystander effect. Meaning the more people that are present when something bad happens the less likely 
that it it is that it's going to be reported because everybody kind of passes the buck to other people. And it's like, oh, well, I don't have to call because Donna's here. She'll call. Donna's like, well, I don't have to call because Carrie's going to call. And then nobody fucking calls because everybody thinks that the other person did it. Like when Carrie doesn't put the toilet paper on the roll after she's finished. They don't call me the toilet paper bandit for nothing. Mm-hmm. And I will say that over the years, a lot of things came out to kind of debunk that bystander theory of what happened because more people did try to help than they originally alluded to. Yeah. That's what I was going to say is that like, that's what we all know is like the bystander effect and you're like, no one did anything. Yeah. But then, yeah, I'd heard that like people did call and people did try to help. Was it as much as you would think with that many people? Absolutely not. Definitely not. And had they called when she very first got attacked, she may very well have lived. Right. So who the fuck actually did it? Six days after Kitty was attacked, there was a robbery not super far away. And this guy broke into this apartment, broad fucking daylight, with a screwdriver. And this motherfucker comes waltzing out with a TV. And so the neighbors are like, who are you? What you doing? Yeah. Why you got their TV? Yeah. They did not have the bystander effect. You know how many times people steal TVs from Walmart? How? I, I don't know because they fucking check my bag and I'm like, I literally paid for everything. Mm-hmm. And it's all little shit that fits in a bag. Meanwhile, it's like how they get the thing off and get through the thing. I don't know. I don't have a criminal mind. So... He tells the neighbors, oh, they're moving. I'm just helping them move. And they're like, okay. So they go back in their apartment and they're like, hey, are the Johnsons moving? No idea if that's her last name. (laughs) And the people are like, no. And so they're like, okay. Well, Dudio went back to get his screwdriver. I mean, because you can't leave a screwdriver behind. Meanwhile, Toyota did in my car, and I got a really nice screwdriver now. Thank you very Damn. much. Mm-hmm. Damn. So, he goes to leave. Obviously, it's reported. Something screwy is happening over at the Johnsons. <laughs> <laughs> well, one astute detective realized that, hey, the guy that just got arrested for that robbery... His car is really similar to the one that was seen at Kitty's crime scene. So they're talking to the guy and he's like, okay, you got me. I did the robbery. And they're like, okay, but we know there's more. And he's like, okay, I did other robberies too. (laughs) They're like, but what else? And he's like, I raped a few girls. And then they're like, and and he's like, you caught me. I killed her. And they're like, killed who? And he's like, and he confessed to killing Kitty. He also confessed to killing Annie Mae Johnson. Johnson. Holy shit. Maybe I like subconsciously saw that down there or something. Yeah. Don't look at his Johnson. So Annie Mae Johnson and Barbara Kralik. But somebody else had been convicted of Barbara Kralik's thing. That's a whole nother story. But that's who he... Confess to. Well, because the police are like, what the fuck? This guy is like married. His wife is a nurse that works night shift. Like he's got a couple of kids. Like 
five German Shepherd. Like, who? who what? No criminal record. They're just, like, baffled by, who is this guy? Well, his name is Winston Mosley. And Winston said that he had left home about 1 a.m. that morning just wanting to find someone to attack. He kind of minimizes his motives by saying it was robbery, but mm, I don't think so. Good try. Right. So it's 1 o'clock in the morning. He's driving around. He's got his hunting knife with him. And at 3 a.m. is when he sees Kitty. So he does a U-turn to follow her. And then when she parks, he parks. And then that's when he attacked her. And, you know, the whole time that he's telling police, he he really has that same calmness that he did when they were questioning him about stealing the TV and stuff. Like, you know, you almost just believe him because he's so, like, yeah, they called me. They told me to do the thing. Yeah. You know, there was no, like, uh, like, there was no nervousness. There was no. Yeah, he was so nonchalant. Yes. And that's exactly how he was when he was confessing to police. Even though he confessed, he did actually plead not guilty by reason of insanity. And he did go to trial. Well, he was found guilty. And the judge, Shapiro was his last name. So I'm I'm like, is he kin to Robert Shapiro? You know, like, I'm like, "Hmm, I wonder if that's like a family, you know? Yeah. Anyway, that judge was like known for not supporting the death penalty, but like, immediately basically sentenced him to death. Dang. His defense attorney appealed because in the sentencing process, you have to allow the defense to present basically character witnesses to show that they're not as bad as their crime says they are kind of thing. Yeah. And Judge Shapiro like shut it down and was like, absolutely fucking not. Like, he's a piece of shit and sentenced to death. So his death sentence was actually overturned, and he got 20 years to life. Mm. Well, in 1968, he was serving time in Attica when he actually escaped. Probably nonchalant. Hey. uh Well, he was at a hospital and escaped from there. While he was out, he raped someone. There were hostages involved. Wow. But eventually, they got him, and he got another 30 years on top of his 20 to life. Wow. He was up for parole 18 times, but ended up dying in prison March 28th of 2016, and he was 81. He was one of the longest-serving inmates in New York at the time of his death. Wow. So, one thing that I thought was very interesting. So, okay. Well, aside from the fact that the, is it bystander effect is it not the good samaritan laws actually came out of this too whereas basically you can't get in trouble for genuinely trying to help someone so if i pull donna out of a burning car and it makes her spinal cord injury worse she can't sue me because of the good samaritan laws well i was trying to save your life you know what i mean that's basically what those laws mean The other thing that Kitty's death helped accomplish was starting the ball rolling with what we know of now as our 911 system. I didn't know that. Yeah. So 
because back then you had to dial for the operator or the police station, and then it was like passed along and blah, 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 blah. Mm. And so it was like that case was one of the, again, kind of the catalyst to to get it rolling. And that started in 1968. Okay, one more thing I want to say that I I feel like was quite interesting. So March 13th of 63 is when Kitty and Marianne met. March 13th of 1964 was their anniversary, which was when Kitty was murdered. March 13th of 1967, which was the three-year anniversary of Kitty's death, Kitty's brother was serving over in Vietnam. He was trying to move like a landmine or something, and it exploded, and he lost both legs from the hips down. Oh, gosh. So I just find that so interesting. He lived and, you know... Has had an amazing, prosperous life. But it's just so interesting, that date, you know? Yeah. And that's it. That is the death of Kitty Genovese. Yeah, I had no idea that was her name until you said that she was staying in Brooklyn and stuff. And Mm -hmm. then I was like, wait, Kitty, Brooklyn. Queens, but yes. uh, Yeah, sorry. Kitty, Queens, like, no, 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 I do know this. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and it was... It was on a crime to remember. That's how I know it. Yeah. There's, I mean, there's, there's so, so many things about, I mean, Law and Order had an episode, like, basically about it, you yeah. know, I R- mean, like. Ripped from the headlines. Yes. That it's, it, there's so much in the media about this story. So I'm not surprised that you had heard it. It's crazy, though. I mean, it's such a tragedy, but also it was the catalyst for some great things, which is the only silver lining of these types of stories. Definitely. When they create like a law or... Amber Alert. Fucking 911 from it, you know? But, you know, her her brother in the documentary I watched on YouTube, he was, I think, 16 when she died. But he was very enlightened in that as he grew older, he really tried to look to say, what would I have done? If I was there and was witnessing that happen to a stranger, like what would my response actually be? And to try to not try to be introspective and to see what he thinks that he would do, because you never know until you're in the situation, but so that he could move on and not blame the bystanders. Yeah. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. I almost feel like in both of our stories, something was before its time. Like, your hotel was, like, this amazing spa that was before its time, you know, because I feel like just, like, with travel and all of that, you know, I mean, obviously, the beginning of it with the healing waters and all that bullshit, but you know what I mean? Yeah. But just, like, this glamorous spa, and Kitty and Marianne were clearly before their time. Yes. But also were the pioneers to help people live their truth now, Mm -hmm. as much as I hate that saying. Live your truth, but you get the point. Yeah. Well, I like this. I got back to haunted shit, and you went back to to the old days where, like, I mean, well, because A Crime to Remember is, like, my... I love that show. Me too. If y'all don't watch A Crime to Remember, you are missing out. It's it, on Hulu now. Yeah, it's from Investigation Discovery, and it's stories like this from, like, the 50s and 60s that were not just cookie-cutter you know? Yeah. But like, sorry, what I was going to say is like, you went back to a time where 
like before 911. And so that was like a catalyst of that. So that's cool too. Yeah. Well, y'all know we always want to know what y'all think of the episodes. Keep sending in your stories for sinister sightings to aparanormalchicks at gmail.com. Don't forget to review us on iTunes. Thank y'all so much for listening. Remember, again, stay safe, stay at home, wash your hands, and remember, creep it real and and don't don't get scared. scared.